he said there used to be, it was very popular performance art where the artists would perform and engage the audience in the performance. The audience became part of it. And he said, Yiddishkeit is God's performance art. Isn't that amazing? You go into the sukkah and we're all in this artistic, creative endeavor and you submerge in a mikvah and then there's the evening with your husband. And, you know, it's like this, all of life becomes this interactive, artistic endeavor. I'm Tanya, and you're listening to Season 2 of Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by Tzipora and Abi Vale, and is dedicated to the Human and Holy podcast guests who share and open up. I love that dedication. Thank you to the Vales for making today's episode happen. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor, and you can find the link to that in the show notes. Today is also the last day to sign up to the Human and Holy community platform before we close registration for the next couple of months. If you are wavering about signing up, now is your chance to hop on. We have a unique community platform available through our site and an app where you can join live Human and Holy events, continued conversations around ideas discussed on the podcast, and make personal one-on-one connections with other Jewish women. Membership is $10 a month, and you can cancel anytime. I hope to see you there. All right, on to today's episode with the absolutely fabulous Shimona Tsukernik. Shimona is a world-renowned coach who uses the teachings of the Torah to help guide people towards personal transformation. She is a creator of The Method, an international lecturer, and has recently discovered somatic therapy as a tool to help her clients heal. I had the absolute honor of speaking with Shimona, who, besides for being intellectually brilliant, is also warm, honest, open-hearted, and tremendously insightful about the human experience of God. There are some books or poems or conversations that I've experienced that awakened a magic and a hopefulness within me, and this conversation was one of those. Today, just a couple days before Shavuos, as we prepare to receive the Torah in our lives, Shimona shares with us what it means to have a visceral experience of God. To accept the Torah, not only in our hearts and minds, but also within our bodies. Pulling from sources in Torah and Hasidus, as well as her own experience as a somatic therapist, Shimona asks and answers. How can we address the visceral resistance we feel toward certain mitzvos? How can we lean into the body's experience of a joyful Jewish life? My name is Shimona Tsukernik, and currently I work primarily as a somatic therapist. I've been a motivational speaker for decades, and COVID kind of put a little bit of a stop to that, but other things were already in the works. So I do that, motivational speaking, and I teach in seminary. I'm a mother and a grandmother, which is just delicious. My, my daughter-in-law has been on your show. I actually went to teach in seminary and the students said to me, you remind us of Mrs. Tsukernik. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I am Mrs. Tsukernik. And they said, no, the other one. And uh, oh, I was good. like, oh, that's, that's Viola. Anyway, so I teach in seminary and I run an online coaching program. Okay, nice. So I mean, you've done so much in your life, obviously being very modest about it, but I would love to know what prompted your pivot somewhat to doing somatic therapy primarily as your work. Yeah, that was a really interesting turn. And 
you know, just kind of paying attention to Hashem's guidance. Divine providence, Hashgacha Protest, is really his way. He's not booming from the mountain. He's speaking to us through the events that occur in our daily life. About 10 years ago, I went to South Africa, and there'd been a lot of crime there. And I arrived, and I didn't want to leave my wallet full of credit cards, and that's how I settled myself down and said hi to my folks, had something to some tea, and went out into the garden to go through my purse and there was someone who had broken in, someone who was in the garden and I had a look and I was like, oh, you know, I didn't know that my folks had gotten someone new to manage the garden. I didn't recognize the person and then I realized that he had broken in and I was very nervous and I tried to get into the house before he attacked me. I'd actually locked the door because I wanted to protect my father from the potential thief. <laughs> and at the door, he punched me on my back and my head was popping against the metal gate. And we fought. And thank God I was able to fight him off. But in the process, he pulled my thumb out. He ripped the thumb out of the socket. It was pretty brutal. And I was giving a lecture that night. And I thought, oh, I'll just go for therapy and I'll deal with it right away, you know. So I went to the doctor, had the thumb put back, made a session with a therapist and I talked it out and I thought everything was going to be okay. And while I was talking, I started to disassociate and I knew exactly what was happening. And I said to the crowd, it was like a mingling, you know, for young singles. And I said, guys, I'm sorry, I just... This is what I'm, and then I just left. And then I came back and I said, that's what's happening. And weirdly, I thought that I could deal with that with talk therapy, but you can't because the brain, the way we're made, doesn't work that, you know, we're just not built that way. And I did EMDR, but I didn't study EMDR at that time. And then I had a client who had been gang raped. And I saw there is no way to help someone in this situation. The trauma is too great. I felt God had made me undergo that attack so that I could help this person. And I had a friend and she said to me, take a somatic training. And it was a complete game changer. It's changed my life and the way that I work and the people that I'm involved with. Wow. So can you share with us a little bit about what somatic therapy is for anyone who isn't familiar? Yeah, sure. So our brain has, well, there's so many ways to divide the brain. And I remember reading a National Geographic article that said we've kind of accessed the outer extremities of the universe, but we can't figure out what's going on between our ears. Mm. You know, the brain is just so mysterious. But one way of looking at it in a cross-section is the outer brain is the thinking brain, the cerebral cortex, and then the midbrain is called the limbic brain. It's emotional. So there's the thinking brain and the emotional brain, and then right in the center towards the base, there's the reptilian brain or the physical brain. And We understand Hashem created us from soil on the sixth day of creation. There we go. But the way that he built us looks like we evolved over eons. You know, I I remember learning that there are stars that are millions or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of light years away. And that light has reached us. So from a scientific perspective, you could say, well, you know, that proves that the universe is millions of years old because for the light to reach us. But our sages tell us, the Chachamim tell us, that the world was created complete. The stars were created with their light reaching the world. Mm. And the brain of a person was created with all these layers. So we have the reptilian brain, which is physiological functioning, like to piss and to poop and to sweat and to procreate and all that stuff. One aspect of that brain is breathing. But breathing is the only bodily function that is both automatic and conscious. 
And when you think about neshama and neshima, the soul and breath, that takes on a whole other dimension. So there's this very primitive, so to speak, part of the brain. And then there is the emotional brain around that, and all mammals have that. And then there's the thinking brain. And I think of it as like in Noyach's Teva, in the ark, you know, our kids come home with that all the time. There's their little art projects of the people at the top and the animals in the middle and the trash at the bottom. And that's how the brain is and that's how our body is. Mm. Your head is the thinking part and the upper torso is the feeling part and the lower torso would be the trash part. But they all contain each other. Mm. And in the brain, the emotions are in that central part and that is a lot of who we are. So when people remember things that weren't charged or traumatic, could be positively charged or negatively, if they're remembering something that's more neutral, they remember it in words, and you can talk about it and there's a certain objectivity. But when we remember things that are very difficult for us, we remember it viscerally with our body. Wow. And with our emotions. So if you feel certain physical sensations, you know that you've been triggered. And that's actually a memory. And so somatic therapy helps people by beginning with the visceral, with the sensory and emotional component of memory. Mm. so that you can work through and discharge the trauma that has been held in the body because that fight or flight survival instinct is so much of who we are. I kind of think of Moloch Shalat al-Halev, the head should rule the heart. I used to think of it as like this corporal sergeant running the show, do this, do that, and I don't think of it like that anymore. I kind of and more aware of the observer, we should all be observant choose, kind of observing ourselves from the thinking brain, noticing what's happening in the emotions and in the body. And by being present to that, we heal. What we resist persists. Mm. It's old memory and we stuff it down. So, you know, that's a little bit of how somatic therapy works. Small window. What you're sharing is really powerful, and I think it's something that people are only becoming aware of recently, is this idea of the body really storing memories, and that when you have a physical reaction, it's because the memory is so much deeper than words could describe. And today we're going to talk about what it means to have a visceral experience of your Yiddishkeit. So it's interesting because many mitzvahs are very tactile and very physical. And I think for so long, people just didn't really see the connection between the spiritual and the physical in that way. I think what you will share today is going to illuminate that for us. What does it mean that Yiddishkeit and our relationship with Hashem is something that we experience in that visceral way that you're describing, where you can actually feel it in your body and in your bloodstream? You know, I was thinking about the title of your podcast, Human and Holy. I, I don't know what the back end of your thinking was, but I am so struck by the name of a person. I mean, a person and a human are different, right? There's a human, Adam, and then there's a person-ish. It's become very common for people to speak about she's a nice human, mm. which I find quite sad because it's a general category. You know, it's like people speak about the planet instead of the earth and higher power instead of God mm. and a human instead of a person. Like it's very different to say I'm a human on the planet in the presence of a higher power as opposed to I'm a person on earth watched over by God. Like wow. one's really intimate, yeah. right? They're different. But the word human, like your human and holy, it, it is right on point because Adam, the first person, was called that because he was made from the earth, Adama. Mm. But he's also called that because of the word Adame, Le'elion. He's similar to the supernal. Mm. 
So he's of the earth and he's holy. And the word human etymologically is from the word humus, decaying organic matter, the earth. So the word human is the exact equivalent of the word Adam. And in my life and in my work, I'm always thinking about us at the interface. It's like the hourglass and we're right there between this earthly being and the soul that was breathed into us. And, you know, when I, when I was a Carla and I was getting married, I, I learned that classic teaching, which I guess we all learn, is that each and each man and woman have the elephant shin in common and the letters that are distinct are a yud and a hey, which spells Hashem's name, ka. And I was told you have to have the yud and the hey because otherwise you're just left with the aleph and the shin, which is aish, a fire. And that's true, you know, if you don't have God in your marriage, the sexual passion will burn you up. It's a fiery relationship. It's not a watery relationship. It's fire. But at the same time, I got married and I was like, yeah, but if you don't have the aleph and the shin, this is really important. The fire is important. If you just have the yud and the hay, well, then that's angels. We need the human part of who we are. And personally, I think that somatic therapy is a very gaulidic kind of therapy. We're coming to Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, and we're taught that at that time the heavens descended to the earth and the earth rose up to the heavens. And I think that talk therapy is much more the heavens coming down and somatic therapy is the earth coming up. Mm. And I think that all of the focus on, like you're saying, a visceral experience of Yiddishkeit is a redemption kind of of Judaism, where you can't leave God in the heavens, right? He's got to come down, but we also have to bring him up. And I saw an interesting letter, it's also in Sikhs of the Rebbe, where the Rebbe was speaking about the Balshentov's vision, when will Mashiach come, that the Balshentov ascended on high, and he saw Mashiach, and he said, when will you come, Kaosimai, when will my master come? And the Baal Shem Tov said, when your wellsprings go outward. And the Rebbe says, those wellsprings are obviously the wellsprings of Yiddishkeit, the inner dimension of, of Yiddishkeit. And we know that the water that Rivka drew from the well, this wasn't from that particular letter, but the water that Rivka drew for Eliezer is the source of the water of Torah throughout the generations. But the water that was underground in the aquifer. That's the water from the Baal Shem Tov on of Hasidus. Mm. You know, that Hasidus is taking from the aquifer that feeds the well, right? And the Rebbe says in that letter, he says, the well springs going out would also mean that you have to take your watery consciousness because the brain is a watery organ and it's surrounded by this cerebral spinal fluid and send it outwards. Your head is a heaven and it has to leave and go down. I mean, I know in the analogy I gave of the wellspring, we're speaking about something under the ground, but in that letter the Rebbe is speaking about drawing this down from above to below and it has to move down the spine and mm. that light, the light of consciousness enters into the watery fluids around the brain, moves down the spine, influences the heart and moves into the body. We transform ourselves and that's a real mutton Torah. Mm. And as a result of the mutton Torah, that's what we would call in Hasidus, we find it all the time, an arousal from above. But there's also an arousal from below. It's the female arousal, and that is gut up. I think of it now that way. 
like bottom up from the earth to elevate. And that's when we speak about mitzvahs or a woman's unique connection. Her body, all of our bodies are also a mind in the sense that we remember with our bodies and there's activity in the gut that's directly correlated with the brain. Women have a very specific way of doing that. And actually, mystically, if you look at the letter Lamed, it's three votes, a top one and then a horizontal one and the bottom one. The top one is Adam. His influence is top down. The male influence is top down. In a Noah Sikha, I think it was in Tavshin 1990, the Rebbe speaks about that as Menshalom, government. Government is top-down leadership. Mm. But the bottom vav is Chava, and that's Malchus, bottom-up leadership. The middle one is the snake, the mm. Nachash, and the, they correspond to the head and the heart are Adam and Chava. Not to say a man doesn't have a heart and a woman doesn't have a head, not at all. But where do we come from and where are we going? And then marriage is really challenging because right there you've got to deal with the snake and you've got to deal with the anger of the liver. So I think that somatic therapy, if talk therapy was a male modality that was top down, somatic therapy is really this visceral bottom-up experience of refining the body and bringing it heavenward. Oh my gosh. I felt what you said viscerally. <laughs> I really felt it. I love that line that you use that your head is a heaven. And I think I definitely experienced that, that challenge of this ideal that I know to be true, that I struggle at times to integrate into my body and in not just into my human experience. And I'll be knowing this information and it's this heavenly information and I'm trying so hard to integrate it. And mm. yet I find time and time again that I'm not able to bring it down in that moment into my body's experience, like trust for anxiety right. or things like that. You reminded me of a story actually, because I relate to what you're saying. I, I happen to be a very cerebral person. I'm also like I love to dance. I, I loved working with clay and my hands, etc. There's a big divide between the head and the heart. There's actually I can't remember where I saw it's from the Friedrich Rebbe. I think it's in Contras Torres of Hasidus. I think, but he says there that the purpose of Hasidus is to teach the heart to think and the head to feel. Mm. It's so profound. And Adifa Brangan, where the Rebbe was speaking about this, he said, Hasidus builds a bridge between the head and the heart. I think it's in Likute de Burim. One of the Hasidim challenged the Rebbe and said, but, you know, they, they're so far apart. And he said, well, if you can't build the bridge, because they really are on other sides of the ravine, then have telephone wires. You know, you can Ooh. call in. So. <laughs> and then he says there that Hasidus, and generations of Hasidus make people more able to cross that divide. And, you know, when you were saying that there's the sense of being the head is a heaven, but it's distant and removed from the earth, it reminded me of that story of, about Rabbi Meisel's Meislish, the Hasid of Alter Rebbe. And Alter Rebbe had him work as an underground spy. And he was in a room looking at maps. And Napoleon walked in and marched over to Rabbi Meisel's and, and stretched out his arm, put it on his chest and wanted to feel. He was trying to discern, was his heartbeat going to be different or irregular? And it wasn't. I mean, that is a remarkable story. Since I've learned what I have about the brain and the body, I always found it to be an unusual. But in, I couldn't say it was inspiring because it felt so out of reach for me, mm. but it was certainly remarkable about another person. I mean, now I just think, how is that possible? In some way, it means that he was able with his awareness 
to master the instinctive human fight-flight response. Mm. And I do see in my work that that becomes more and more possible. I'm not saying that we become always human (laughs) and automatically holy, but we have to flay ourselves apart from our experience and watch. The noticing brain is actually the left side of the prefrontal cortex, which is Bina. It's interesting to me. It's like the internal mother, and I will be able to just connect with my awareness, with consciousness, and watch what's happening in the body. Mm. And then that can help us master ourselves. So what you're suggesting is that it's more than just connecting the head and the heart. It's actually connecting the head, the heart, and the body. Because like we were saying, like the physical experience of a mitzvah, or even just the choice to do a mitzvah, is often very much a physical struggle. I'll give an example of covering my hair. Leaving the house with a shaitel for me is a visceral struggle. Intellectually, I only want to leave my house with a shaitel. Physically, Mm. I literally feel Mm. my head itch. And I know this information that is beautiful and true, and this is where I want to be. And then viscerally, I feel like I don't want to do this. A resistance, exactly. I would love to be able to integrate it into my visceral experience so that that same beauty I felt in my mind, I could actually feel in my head when I put it on. Right. Well, I mean, let's look at that from a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. That's an interesting example that you share because hair is so powerful. Mm. Hair and air, you know. It's like the hair that leaves our head is called the leftovers, the remnants of the brain. It's like the waste matter of the, wow. of, the, of the brain. But the, each shaft of hair is hollow and light moves through it. Mm. The light of consciousness is moving through it. That's why people are so attached to it. You know, people are not attached to things for no reason. Their nails, hair, like let's say someone says, well, it's just an inch. What do you care? Well, if it's just an inch, what do you care? Mm. You know, like, you know, do the button up, cover the, sp- but what do you care? But it's not just an inch. No. It's not just an inch. Mm-mm. There's a certain power that is there. And I know we're not talking about that now, but we could. And the top down approach would be to think about it, to think about what here is and there's a mimer of it by the Tzemach Tzedek where he explains why men's hair is to be revealed and women's isn't. And then you meditate on that. And I always think about thought, the left and right side of the brain, Chochmen Bina, give birth to babies, and those are the six midos, our feelings. So the six children that were given birth to in Egypt, those are the babies, the children of your thought. And then the babies have their own babies. They grow up and they have babies and that's your action. So behavior on the ground is like the grandchild of my thinking. But my thoughts are also born of my beliefs, which are more abstract. Mm. So my behavior is the great grandchild of my belief system. And a top-down approach there would be to say, well, I'm going to learn and study and reconnect with my faith. And that's something that you're saying you do but to look at this from a somatic perspective would be let me bend my knees and be with that part of me i'll give you the analogy and then we can try it the friedrich Rebbe in the lachadoidi mimer speaks about a grandfather who wants to play with his child and he says first he has to bend down and pick up the child and then the child plays with his beard, which is the highest levels of the 13 attributes of mercy. Mm. So sometimes we dismiss that part of us that says, I don't want to cover my hair. Well, can you be with that part and just attend to her? What is that about? And bend your knees, get quiet, pay attention. Instead of just covering the head. There is a resistance and there is a need there. 
that allows for a certain sweetening. It may seem that this is abstract, but I have found, like, how has somatic therapy impacted my life? On the one hand, I have much more self-compassion. I also have more self-mastery. My life is gentler. My relationships are gentler. And it certainly transformed the way I work with my clients. So that place of compassion where you can just say, yeah, I'm going to be with myself. You know, take your right hand, put it over your belly button, your left hand, put it over your heart and just hold yourself. I mean, try that now. So just put your left hand over the heart and the right hand on the belly button. There you go. And then just... Think about the mother is part of the consciousness and you can hold your own self and be kind to yourself. It's like, I know that's hard for you and you do it. And maybe maybe you want to ask that part of you, what's this about? You know, that would be a little bit more like voice dialogue, but what's that about, you know? What does your hair showing give you. There are things that it gives a person. There's also a price that we pay. You know, one has to do cost-benefit analysis. I mean, ultimately what you're saying is, I want to be close to Hashem. You know, that's something I, I don't want to give up on. But when we're struggling, it's because that gives us something. It's like people say drugs are a problem. No, they're the solution. <laughs> Drugs are the solution people go to to solve a deeper problem. And then if we just try and come with that corporal attitude, do it and regiment it, we miss out. I'm not saying we don't have to have that part of the picture, but we also need the gut-up approach, that gentle female malchus approach to our Yiddishkeit. There is a letter, and I'm just going to, say to anyone who's listening, hear me out till the end. Okay, okay. Yeah, for sure. It might sound really harsh, but I rem- there's a book, it's called Beautiful Within. Rabbi Eitzel put it out, I think, in English, and it's letters about sneers. And in, in one of those letters, a woman writes to the Rebbe and she says, it's painful for me to cover my head. And the Rebbe tells her, then cut your hair. And... You know, I I remember reading that. I I personally love covering my hair. I love it. And so that's not a specific challenge, but I can relate to that challenge in so many other things that are difficult. But let's stay with the hair. So the the Rebbe is saying to her, cut your hair. I have met women who have great sensitivity. Their heads hurt so much. They've tried cutting their hair very short or even shaving the head or having it very long and tied up in different ways, that might be a psychosomatic response where people somatize and somatization would be instead of dealing with my primary anxiety, Mm. I dump the anxiety or the feeling in a part of my body and I dump it in the place in my body that makes sense. Like I happen to have back surgery. I was in a car accident when I was a teen. And so if I'm feeling stressed or I'm feeling uncomfortable emotionally, if it's angry or insecure, whatever that feeling is. So then later I'll very often find my back is sore. So now I know when my back is sore, I can just say to myself, well, you know, okay, what's going on? What's happening right now that you don't like? You know, that was very much Dr. John Sarno's approach in mind-body prescription. So with feeling discomfort, you might want to look, let's say, with a mitzvah, have a look at what the resistance is. And when I, when I give that analogy of bending the knees and coming to that place, I mean really allowing for whatever is there to have its conversation. And I've done that with women who say, you know, this is one woman's experience and it could not at be at all. You know, like one woman might feel my mother was 
oppressed and my dad was always wanting her to cover her hair, you know, complaining if something was sticking out. Or another woman might say, I can't be my full sexual self Mm. with my hair covered Mm. and my sexuality is a very big part of my identity. Another woman could say, I don't feel free. I just don't feel free and I want to be free. And then you have to be with that experience, with that part of yourself and just allow for that. I don't mean allow for it, you know, pull off the wig. I mean allow for that part of you to have a voice and then see what happens in the conversation. We want to be alive and inspired and there has to be joy in our service of Hashem like an open-heartedness and a joy. The wellsprings have to flow outwards means let me immerse myself in learning to the extent that it's going to radiate outwards and shift my heart. And the other side, I think, is if I can bring joy. Hidur mitzvah is there for a reason. You make it beautiful. Imagine there was no hidur mitzvah. It's like just, okay, get it done, Mm. next, but we make it beautiful and that brings joy. One of my favorite verses in, in Tehillim is The beautiful sight gladdens the heart and good news strengthens the bones. That's a somatic verse. Mm. So when we look at beautiful things, when we dress in beautiful and refined clothes, we're shifted. Mm. And certainly when people hear good news, they feel strong. Yeah. The limbic brain is activated. That's a beautiful suggestion of hitter mitzvah as a way of creating a more beautiful, physical, visceral experience of mitzvahs is to really engage all your senses. And that's something that I was recently thinking about because I was learning about AI, artificial intelligence, and the whole concept of living in a metaverse and people, you know, not going to parties anymore and sending themselves. And I'm thinking that mitzvahs will always keep us rooted in our senses when everything could possibly be transmitted to us through sight. If we ever do wind up living in a metaverse where most things happen on our screens, which I mean, we're already kind of living there, but The more we get immersed in that world, I think the more mitzvahs are going to ground us in our physical experience as human beings. You have to go out into a physical sukkah and be sweating. I mean, I'm from Texas, so it's hot on sukkahs. You know, sweating, mosquito bites. You have to feel that experience in a physical way. Like people are pushing each other to go out into nature to feel things, to touch things, to look people in the eye. And it's like fill in leather straps, Shabbos candles, the feeling of the wooden stick, the match, you know, all these things are really physical experiences that, like you said, they strengthen your bones. I wrote an article about that exact, it wasn't about AI and the metaverse, but because this was like 20 years ago and the world has changed so much since then. But I interviewed Mel Alexenberg. Mm. I remember was quite involved in his work. He was the director of Pratt for a while and now he runs an art school, art and trade. I'm not exactly sure in Israel. His story is written up in my story, but he was speaking in a very interesting way about the three sons of Noyak, Shem, Ham and Yafis and how Ham was humorous and visceral and Yafis was an aesthetic beauty and mm. shame is the name of Hashem in the tense of Torah and how to be Jewish you actually have to have all of that and as he was talking about it he said there used to be it was very popular performance art where the artists would perform and engage the audience in the mm. performance the audience became part of it and he said Yiddishkeit is God's performance art you know oh. like isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah, like you go into the sukkah and we're all in this Ooh. artistic, creative endeavor and you submerge in a mikvah and there's someone else there and then there's the evening with your husband. And, you know, it's like this all of life becomes this interactive, artistic endeavor. I don't want to say performance because I don't mean that we're pretending. 
And I also think about it in terms of reading on Shabbat. You know, whatever people have, if they have a Kindle or they're listening to Audible, etc., that's not happening on Shabbos. It's not going away. The people of the book will always be the people of the book. Actually, I really feel that. I identify with that a lot, that Yiddishkeit gives a magic to life. It really does. Like There's a certain magic to the way we are continuously revisiting the same experience. I felt that this year with the Seder, but you're revisiting it in a deeper way. And, And it's like, there's so many textures and there's so much going on. Imagine being invited by a master artist to this interesting meal where every single food represented something else and had all these deep, rich life lessons. It would just, we would see it as that magical, immersive experience. And Yiddishkeit is exactly that. So that was gorgeous. I want to ask you if you can share any situations in your life where you've had success using this bottom-up approach that you are describing, where you've been able to kind of use your somatic understanding to help you grow within your Yiddishkeit. Well, as I said before, the, the compassion and the mastery shifts the Yiddishkeit. So mm. there might be something I'm not comfortable doing. With the somatic approach, I'm able to find out why I'm uncomfortable, and then that changes the way I do things. Let's say davening. So I have struggled with it for years, but I could sit and just notice my resistance and then come curiously to that. Why am I so resistant? And then I realized it's like, you know, I have a certain shame about who I am. Well, that's okay. I mean, that's supposed to be something along those lines, but I had to get comfortable being uncomfortable with talking to Hashem and it was so intimate. And then there's another side of it, which is you just need automatic feedback. I happen to be very attuned and I pay attention to people's responses. I can read a crowd. I can read an individual. It's like, okay, Hashem, (laughs) give me, talk to me, talk to me. Mm. And there isn't that. I have to get more quiet and more humble. So taking that observant approach, which is the somatic approach of noticing, laying myself apart helps. If I get angry, I'm much better able to manage my anger. I, it's been a game changer because I'm no longer hijacked by my emotions. I'm not like Rabbi Meisler, who Napoleon put his hand on his heart and he didn't even feel it. it he didn't feel the pulse irregular from the get-go. I might be triggered and activated, but I'm very much more able to calm that down and then when I'm not hijacked by the feeling I can make different choices the limbic brain is reactive it's fight Mm. or flight the human brain human and holy brain is the brain that can watch and make choices but it doesn't necessarily come because I have ultimatums for myself and I'm harsh with myself. No, I could just notice that and say, oh, you know, I'm nervous. Like I'll give you an example that wasn't a mitzvah but a real practical example in my life. We had a postal worker who was very aggressive. The person was fired eventually, and I wasn't the only person that had complained. But I would be doing recordings and he would ring the bell even if there was a sign there. So one day I went out and he had rung the bell and I had been doing a recording for myself and I said, excuse me, you know, the sign is there for a reason. I prefer to go to the post office to pick it up than that you ring the bell. And he became so aggressive and he started walking towards me and my body went into fight or flight And I was able to say, this is the memory of seeing the man in the garden. Mm. Ask yourself that question, what does this remind me of? Oh, you know, and when I could say, these are my sensations, these are my feelings, this is what it reminds me of. And then all of a sudden, I'm not in the garden. I'm safe. I'm on my street, outside my home. It's a postal worker and I'm okay. Wow. 
and this is just that memory. So when we get angry with each other, if we feel mm. intimidated, someone might have to host guests and feels intimidated. You can just have that compassion notice and then move move through the next best action that's being required of us. Oh, wow. Also different having those courageous conversations where we need to negotiate with people or maybe to receive correction from someone and maybe someone's telling me I need you to do this differently and I have to honour my teacher or my mother or my mother-in-law but I have very negative memories around authority. So being able to, I think of this as a real practical tip. You can think of your sensations and feelings and thoughts as the water moving down a riverbed. Mm. And you could be in that river, and sometimes rivers are really wild, and they could carry you away and you bump against the rocks or get caught in a whirlpool or thrown over the waterfall. Or you could go to the side and sit on the bank and watch the river. It's so powerful to say, oh, you know, I'm feeling jealous or I notice a feeling of jealousy in me and I notice it as a heat in my solar plexus. Mm. Boom. Now you're the master of the jealousy rather than I am jealous, which feels like I am jealousy. I am the embodiment of jealousy. I'm (laughs) mad and bad and how could I? And boom, boom, clapping all hit and beating myself up. And now the eight Saharas come in and it's just like taking me apart, Mm. ripping me to shreds as opposed to, hmm, yeah, this reminds me of when I felt jealous when I was in 12th grade and I didn't get the geo position, I don't know, whatever it was, and I begin to be able to say these feelings come with these sensations and I notice these thoughts. Or let's say you're speaking to your husband, it's very different to say I'm mad at you or a part of me is mad at you. It sounds a little artificial, but in the one you're in the river being swept away. You've been hijacked. You're just being washed away. And mm. in the other, you're watching. You're the observant Jew <laughs> watching your experiences, the whole host of human frailty. Nice. I'm all of that. I love that advice that you gave for when you're kind of reliving a memory. You're in that fight or flight mode because of a memory that your body has stored and just kind of removing yourself to watch the river flow through you. What would be your advice when someone is disassociating? Because to me, that seems a little bit different than being swept up in the current is when they really just disassociate and they actually totally remove themselves from the situation. To Yeah, that's different, right? Look, when a person is completely in a current, they couldn't even get to the banks. You have a window of opportunity to help yourself. And the same would go with disassociation, meaning they're opposite extremes, right? So when someone disassociates very strongly, they probably can't bring themselves back and need help to do that. Having a witness to the trauma and the disassociation is remarkably healing. I think that's the Brochin Shmona Esrei. I love saying that line because I know that bearing witness to someone's pain helps them heal because maybe they can't be their own observant Jew, but I could, Mm. you know, and then sometimes I have a client on on the couch and she's totally disassociated and I know from the behaviors and whatever's come before what she's happening and then I can just tell her what I'm seeing. And she can hear me. You know, I have a little bell. It's this beautiful bell. And if I feel they're going too far, I'll ring it. So that's extreme, right, to bring someone back. People do different things. Like ice is something a lot of women use to help themselves not disassociate. It can be 
it can perpetuate not working well, not having optimal functioning. So my recommendation for someone who frequently disassociates is catch yourself, like start to watch yourself earlier. Mm. And so I recommend that people practice sensory awareness. Do it with your children. I used to play a game with my kids and my students when I taught third grade boys like 30 years ago or something, which was the listening game. And I'd have them lie down or put their heads on the desk and they had to find all the sounds they could hear around them. It's remarkably calming. So I think that if someone is struggling with disassociation, you want to practice being mindful, having sensory awareness, mm. and then there's a specific meditation I can share, like exercise, a DBT exercise I could share if you want. A practice that when you're in a more regulated state and then you'll start to notice when you're moving out. Let's say the bottom of functioning where you're at the lowest is death. That would be a zero. And when you're totally exploding, that's a 10. Mm. Zero is not good, but neither is 10. You want to kind of be in a four to seven range. Interesting. The Bainani. We don't want, it's like, you know, if I was too relaxed, that would be bad. And if I was talking like this in a mile a minute and you would feel my energy and then everyone that's not good either, right? But if I was really relaxed, you know. So I think that we tend not to be aware of our bodies. Take time to do that. I give my clients a DBT meditation, which is just about becoming aware of different physical sensations. And you can practice that. You can watch your breath. Mm. You know, just try it now. Like if you notice, just watch your breath because breathing can only happen in this moment. And then... You notice that when you breathe in, your belly button moves a little away from your spine. And when you breathe out, it floats back. So then just notice that. And then you notice that the sternum moves away from the spine on the in-breath and it floats back on the out-breath. And that the air coming into your nostrils is cool and dry. And when it leaves, it's warm and moist. So just that wow. brings you into the present. And I think practicing that will help recognize when you're starting to move past seven into eight or lower than four into three. Don't want to do that. What comes to mind is the word kavana, that we stress so much having kavana when we do a mitzvah that we should really be doing it for the intention of God. And in order to do that, we have to be so present in what we are doing. And I hear this very often from women that when a lot of big mitzvahs come around, holidays, I would go specifically with holidays, they feel disassociated. They feel like they can't really tap into the intensity or the immensity of the holiness of the day. And I'm thinking that these tools that you're saying of just really returning to your body's experience of the mitzvah of the day is a really powerful way to connect more deeply to the mitzvahs that we're anyways already doing, that we're already participating in, but just what is kavana? Kavana is to be present with it and to really fully be there with Hashem in the moment and not just to be doing it habitually. Well, that word is a, an important word because kavana intention is the same as kivun, direction. Mm. You know, and then you set your intention and that's where you'll go. Yeah. And you know, I find on the... Yomim Tovim, where I've learned a sicha, a Torah, I'm so much more alive in that mitzvah. Um, at a very practical level, I recommend to women, I used to have a full-day Shabbos, a five-hour Shabbos, and a one-hour Shabbos. I could make Shabbos in an hour. You know, the soup functioned as the chicken and the vegetables. and. Right. I remember meeting a shlucha from South Africa and my kids were little and it was Erev Shabbos and I was outside and they were dressed in their Shabbos coats. It was winter on little bikes and 
driving back and, you know, driving back and forth. And she said, how is it that on Erev Shabbos you're outside and doing this? And I knew exactly how I got to be there. You know, no matter what time Shabbos came in, I had time to make another salad and another side mm. dish. And, a, and I learned that it wasn't – I love cooking. I once went to Seattle and someone said, you're Shimon at Sukunik? And I said, yeah. She was a participant at the event. She said, I heard you're a really great cook. I went there. I was the, I was the speaker, but – she had heard that I was this cook. I love cooking, but I also know that demanding too much, like Cheryl Sandberg says you can have anything you want, yes, but you can't have everything you want. I couldn't be relaxed and in my body and open-hearted and joyous with the children and also have all of those salads on the table. Something had to give. Mm. So sometimes we're, we're, you know, disassociation comes from enormous stress. We, the input is too great. There isn't enough output. So, you know, maybe just let go of the input mm. and the demands a little bit. Easy does it. Nice. I mean, I know people on Schlichus who said, I need to have women who said, I need one meal in the month without guests. Our children need that. We need that. You know, otherwise the price is too high. Or, you know, each one of us, it means getting quiet. I know that the Friedrich Rebbe says our right eye is for looking out and the left eye in. I think of my right ear as listening to others and my left ear as listening in. And sometimes I just want to turn up the volume on my left ear. I have to listen in. What do I want? How much of this is about the way I'm showing up and can I show up for Hashem with me? Powerful. This was so beautiful. I feel like we hardly scratched the surface. I want to ask you a thousand more questions. Thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom. Thank you, Tanya. It was just wonderful to be with you and I'm so inspired. Human and holy is exactly where we're at and mm. where we want to go. That's the Kavana. So thank you for providing that for all of us. Thank you. Yeah. We're all striving for that synthesis. And I really feel like you gave great insight into what that could look like. So thank you Amen. very much. Thanks. The Hala is warm and doughy. You forgot to cover it, so you slip to the kitchen find the special soft cloth, collect the salt shaker, and come back to the table. The candles are like a bonfire. You can see the reflection in your family's eyes. You are sleepy, calm, hungry. Someone lifts the kiddush cup, overflowing with red wine. Their fingers are wet and then sticky. They sing kiddush. The wine slides awkwardly into an empty stomach. You walk to the kitchen, lift the heavy washing cup, pour cold water on each hand. The towel is dry and soft. You slide into your chair at the table. It is quiet. You can hear the air conditioner humming. Someone lifts the chalas, makes the blessing, slices into it with a knife dips it in salt, makes a joke about being the only one who gets to talk. Everyone giggles. You bite into a slice of challah. It is sweet and heavy on your tongue. 30 seconds of silent chewing. And then platters are lifted. You hear the clang of spoons against ceramic bowls. Someone laughs and passes the drinks. It is Friday night, and you have welcomed the Shabbos queen. Can you feel it in your body, the way the calm of Shabbos has descended? Can you taste it on your tongue when you bite into the warm challah? Can you hear it in your heart when you close your eyes and let the song of Kiddush move through you? Can you see it in the candles, the way they reflect your neshama Yisera? 
can you touch it with your fingers? In the soft white tablecloth, in the grainy scattered salt, in the cold cutlery lifted in your palms, can you smell it? Can you taste it? Can you feel the holy Shabbos as it settles into your body? Can you feel the physical sensation of a spiritual reality? Can you feel the presence of God in the five senses of your body? Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha mechaberet nishmati tamidinecha Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail.com. New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.